Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And usually, uh, as we talk, we're talking about um, historical things, um, theological things, a lot of scriptural issues, some kind of how shall we then live um, Christian life application things. Um, Today we're going to take a bit of a, a turn and we're going to look at politics and specifically we're going to be looking at at Marxism and you might think well why is Josiah the pacifist taking this veer off to the left um, to look at Marxism and uh, I have two reasons for this first of all actually I have been surprised in the last couple of years to see that my country is actually really tempted by Marxism um, we have the new Democratic Party, the NDP, which has been around for a long time, um, but has always been kind of a third voice, not really, um, and they're a Marxist base, uh, It's, um, and, but they won uh, in, uh, in one of our provinces in Alberta, and there's um, a political party in Quebec, uh, where, where I'm living currently, um, that almost won in the, in the last provincial election. Um, and they were explicitly Marxist. Um, and so, and I'll, I'll probably talk about that a little bit more later. As well, on Facebook, during elections, um, you know, you tend to end, talk more politics a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, I was very surprised uh, to see that Marxism is alive and well. Uh, people actually seriously believe that, you know, we should, we should take the money from the rich people you know, through the police should, the military, the the government should literally take the money away from rich people and give it to the poor, and that would be fair. And if you have, if you're super rich, then it's immoral for you to be super rich, so you, somebody should take all your money away. So, um, I'm concerned that actually these ideas are out there, and uh, this would be devastating for our country if we ever went thoroughly that direction. Uh, it's been very, very bad for Alberta uh, to be under um, a socialist Marxist party. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be very, very bad uh, if that happened. So I I want to get these ideas out there because, um, and here's the second reason why it's important, Marxism has always been very attractive to Christians because, you know, Christianity at its base, um, I mean, love is the first you know, that, that's the throbbing core of our religion, that, uh, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we want to care for the poor. We want to love the unfortunate among us. Uh, even Jesus, who was homeless and had a traveling ministry where he had to support his disciples and everything, um, when Judas got up from the Last Supper to go, uh, everybody assumed he was going to give money to the poor because that's what they did. Even though they didn't have much, they gave money to the poor. Um, and Paul, when he was being commissioned by the Apostle Peter, said, the Apostle Peter said, don't forget the poor. And Paul said, that's the very thing I'm anxious to do. Um, and in the first fundraising drive that we see in the Bible in Second Corinthians, Paul is raising money to take back to Jerusalem for the poor. Anyways, um, Christianity has always been a religion that cares about the poor, and the statistics are there to say that Christians are 
uh, you know, conservative fundamentalists like the Christians that actually believe it, the real Christians, not just the social Christians, but the real Christians are the most generous people in the world that absolutely fund charities throughout the world. Uh, have started most of the big charities in the world. Some, many of them have gone secular so that they can reach more people. Um, but Christianity is a caring religion. It's a giving religion. As it says in James 1.27, True religion and undefiled in the sight of God is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. And Marxism is a political theory that on the surface says we're going to care about poor people. And so there's this natural sort of affinity. And sometimes in politics, um, well, many times in politics, Christians have felt like, well, there's big business over here that just cares about making a profit and is oppressing its work workers and uh, oppressing sometimes even the consumers. Um, and over here we have Marxism. Well, clearly Marxism is the Christian choice. And for some people at some times in history, um, Maybe Marxism actually has been a good, well, we're going to explain this as we go, uh, but um, that in moving towards Marxism, perhaps not embracing it fully, uh, they were able to bring political change that has helped the workers, has helped the poor. Uh, and so there's this, this affinity, this synergy that seems to be there between Marxism and Christianity. Um, but what people don't know about Marxism is that it has a terrible dark, ugly underside. Uh, as we're going to talk about, it's it's been responsible for 100 million deaths at least in the 20th century. To give you context, World War One and World War II um, and all the Crusades accounted for around 90,000 deaths, uh, 90,000 90, million deaths. So in one century, Marxism, this guy Karl Marx that came up with this idea, has been responsible for a hundred million deaths. You know, the, the Black Death that, that wiped out a third of the population in Europe was responsible for around 27 million deaths. So just to give you a context, like this is like, it's so big you almost can't wrap your mind around the magnitude of the decimation that has, that Marxism has been. It has been the scourge of the earth in the 20th century. And so when I start to see it coming into, and, but we don't hear about it. Like, I mean, I had a fairly extensive, I took an extra year in high school. I took extra history classes. I took extra English classes. I had a fairly, you know, left-leaning liberal arts high school education experience. Um, I never heard of it once as a negative thing, you know. Um Actually, that's not true. I had a very old school uh, economics teacher that said Marxism is bad. And he said, your textbooks won't say this anymore, but this is true. <laughs> it's bad. So I appreciated him for that. Uh, shout out to Mr. Mack. But generally, we don't hear about this as a negative thing. In fact, you'll often hear Marxism glorified and Marxist figures glorified. Um, and... Um, uh, the academy and left-leaning media is very, very, very sympathetic towards Marxism. In spite of the fact that, again, 100 million people dead, and that's that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to um, the negative followed from Marxism. Um, and now, Marxism is being is the 
the dominant view, according to, um, well, according to some, some people, it seems to be the dominant view within the uh, social sciences, um, the humanities, when you're talking about English or history or, um, uh, you know, literature or uh, psychology, uh, Marxism t or art, uh, theater, Marxism tends to be the dominant view, and and gender studies. And these are all part of the humanities. Um, and where this starts to hit us, and where you and I are probably feeling the, the squeeze of this, is that this starts to go back out in society as it intersects with the very cutting edge question of gender issues, party politics, um, the you know the the Me Too movement is you know has some of this mixed in with it. The Black Lives Matter. Um, movement has some of this definitely mixed in with it um the well the um the gay the lgbtq movement definitely has some elements of this mixed in um and even just uh white hating you know there isn't really a name for that uh, but um this idea of hating people that are or, or hating or being intolerant towards people that are white, old, or young, um, that are male, and that are, uh, you know, of a certain socioeconomic status. Um, this all is tied in with this neo-Marxist sort of an idea. And so um, I definitely want to talk more about that but in future podcasts. But today we're going to talk about what is Marxism, kind of historically speaking. What is this phenomenon? What, what did Marx come up with? And then what were the fruits of that? How did that work? Because if it's if it's a good idea, you know, you'd think given enough time, somebody would try it, it would work, and then we'd know it's a good idea. And oftentimes things that work well in one context are going to work well somewhere else. Um, Christianity is an idea that works well in a small community. It also works well, more or less, on a, on a larger scale. Um, Democracy is a is an idea that works fairly well on a small scale and on a large scale and in multiple situations. So we would expect, let, let's look at how it has worked. What are the intellectual underpinnings of it? And um, and then we're going to go to move to some critiques of it. So, and then the next podcast, I want to talk about neo-Marxism. Um, when you say neo, it's just Latin for new. I think it's Latin. Um, but we could talk about neo-Darwinianism or neo-Cartesianism uh, or whatever. It, when you add that, it just means it's like the next generation. It's the 2.0 of of uh, of the idea. So neo-Marxism is Marxism as it is coming into the academy and being applied to gender politics and you know race and ethnicity and, and different things like that. So we'll talk about that in the next podcast. So first step... Um, I like ideas, and kind of my forte is the history of ideas. And so let's let's back up the clock a little bit to um, the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment being the Enlightenment being pretty much the 1700s, um, backing it up probably to 1685 or so, and then all the way into 1815. But pretty much it's the 1700s that are considered the Enlightenment time. And this was a time when uh, society kind of turned away from this, uh, from 
the church being the center of uh, of Western culture, and then after the Reformation, it was kind of Christian doctrine or the Bible uh, revealed religion that was the center of of the Western world, and in the Enlightenment, um, Western society turned away from the Bible and from God as the center of, of truth and turned towards humanism uh, and this idea of of, hum- of the human being being the center of, of um, the foundation of Western society. Um, this was uh, in some ways a new idea, but in some ways it was a very old idea. It was going back to the Greek humanism of... Um, well, actually, the pre-Socratics right before Plato and Aristotle. Um, the sophists believe this, that man was the measure of all things. Um, so we can talk about uh, five different thinkers here. Uh, Rene Descartes, uh, talked about him a lot in previous podcasts, but he, he he's famous for, I think, therefore I am. That saying, uh, he, and he had Cartesian, he was the father of Cartesian philosophy, um, and really brought philosophy from the examination of the world out there to beginning with the examination of the world inside. And so for um, for Descartes, you know, the only thing I can really know is that I exist as a thinking being. If I try and doubt that I exist, then I realize that I'm a, th- a thinking person that's doubting myself. So I know that I exist. That's the one thing I know. <clears throat> and then from there, he tries to prove that God exists. And from there, he tries to prove that the world exists. Well, the problem is that it's actually hard to move from inside to outside. And this is the fundamental problem that has always plagued Cartesianism, is that it leads towards skepticism because you can prove that you exist, but it's hard to move beyond that to prove that anything else exists, if that's your starting point. Um, But this wasn't immediately clear. Uh, People were very excited about Cartesianism for at the beginning. Um, We don't need to begin with... It was exciting, especially because we don't need to be, begin with God and revealed religion in the Bible, um, which is in the possession of the church. We can begin with knowing that I exist, and from there we can build, you know, um, our worldview, uh, starting from the the cornerstone of of existence or of internal experience of the world or something like that. So the mind is the center of the world, not God. So this is kind of the caps the the cornerstone of of turning western the western world away from christianity uh in um you know the mid this was before the enlightenment but 1650s when uh descartes died um voltaire lived uh 1695 to 1778 voltaire was kind of um some would call him the father of deism or a very major thinker within deism. He was in France during a time when, when French royalty and the church, uh, they didn't have a reformation. They fought it off. They were very Catholic, very much part of the decadence of the late medieval Catholic system. Um, and so Voltaire wanted to get rid of all that, get rid of the of the, of the corrupt monarchy, get rid of the corrupt church, get rid of the scriptures that supported it all. All he wanted to keep was his vague idea of God uh, because he felt like they needed some sort of a God. Atheism seemed like it would leave us um, adrift without any moral system. And so he said, well, well, we'll keep some sort of a general idea of morality, but we don't want to have revealed religion because that's what's propping up the church. 
Voltaire, uh, 1695 to 1778 is when he lived. Uh, John Locke was, oh, John Locke came just a little bit before him. They were contemporaries, but John Locke uh, was was actually quite a bit older. Um, John Locke is credited with, um, as well as one of the founders of deism, uh, although he himself was not a deist. He was, uh, you know, kind of a, he, he was an English guy, and he was uh, explicitly, you know, Christian, believed in it, lived it. Um, but he wanted to get rid of this notion of original sin. Original sin um, certainly has its roots in the scriptures. Many um, many people would say that it was Augustine in the 4th century that really um, popularized the notion of original sin in his book Confessions. I've got a sermon in my sermon series on how um, Augustine really affected me and um, really... Uh, made a deep impression on me. Um, but John Locke and and Augustine had a huge impression on the Western world, uh, less so on the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is the main thing that's different between the Orthodox and Catholics and Protestants in the West, because the Orthodox in the East didn't accept Augustine, didn't have access to Augustine. Augustine wrote in Latin, not in Greek. Um, anyways, John Locke wanted to get rid of this idea of notion of original sin. He believed that we were all a blank slate when we're born, uh, tabula rasa in Latin. When a baby is born, it's not evil. It doesn't have sin in its heart. It doesn't have an inclination towards sin. It's not responsible for any of the sins of its parents in any way. And it's com so it's completely, you know, society that makes kids bad. If we could have a perfect society, we would have perfect kids. Uh, John Locke didn't so much go that direction with it. That was more Rousseau, as we'll talk about in a second. But John Locke very much argued that against original sin and for this idea that kids are born innocent. Rousseau is uh, a really important thinker. Um, he's an interesting guy too, and we know a lot about him because his main book is called Confessions, similar to Augustine. Um, Augustine kind of wrote out his life story and through the, his life story explained his core ideas. And Rousseau kind of did the same thing. He wrote out his life story. He was very honest about all the gritty details and um, through that expressed his his central ideas. And it's this book that I need to read it. I haven't read it, but apparently it, um, well, it's very honest and very powerful in its own way. So some of the things that were core and key to Rousseau is an idealis idealization of nature, that nature is perfect um, and nature is where we belong. And um, there's this term, I'm not sure if it's, it was coined by Rousseau, but it came from this period of the noble savage. Now, you know, nowadays you say that, like you don't want to say that too loud um, because savage has taken on a different connotation, of course. But, um, yeah, that sounds really bad, actually, as I say it. But it's this historical concept I'm talking about, okay? Um, so their idea is that the closer you are to nature, the better. And so it was kind of this paradigm shift because, you know, as the West comes in contact with, with um, people that don't have access to technology through travel and through trade and, you know, they find the new world and stuff, um, you know, they're, they're bumping into people's First Nations, people we, we would call them now, or indigenous peoples, or, um, you know, people in Africa. 
that are living very close to the land. They don't have writing. They don't have technology. And the Western tendency up to that point had been to say, well, these are savages. They're, they're below us. And Rousseau is flipping that on its head to say, no, these, are, these people are ahead of us. Look what they have. They don't have stress. They don't have politics. They don't have all these terrible things. These are the people that really have it together. We need to get our society over to being more like them. Um, so this is, he idealized nature. Um, he had this idea, which would be great to come up with a different name for it, uh, but the idea of the noble savage. Um, and uh, this became an important element that we're going to see had an important role in Marxism as it comes along. He too believed that children were innocent. And um, he got this from from John Locke and uh, took it to the next level. In fact, um, yeah, so he took it to the next level in saying that uh, it was really, evil really comes from society. Evil comes from the corrupt church. Evil comes from the corrupt monarchy. Evil comes from money and from, you know, those things, those dirty, ucky things out there that bring the corruption in. If we could just get back to nature, if we just had purity, if we just had things as they should be, then children would, would be raised innocent, they would be raised, you know, without these impurities, and society would be a lot better. Uh, and so he's often credited as well as the, um, the father of modern education, because he came up with this theory of how to raise, how to educate children in a way that would, you know, minimize the effects of um, society on them. Um, which is, you know, deeply ironic, and it's often pointed out that Rousseau had seven children. Um, out of wedlock, he had a mistress that he frequented, never, you know, made her an honest woman, as they say, um, and never took care of his kids. Uh, he had seven kids through this woman, and each one of them he brought to an orphanage, and it wasn't even a good orphanage. It was a place where they literally just withered away and died. Um, and so... Who is he to tell us how to raise our kids? And yet this is kind of um, where modern education starts. Uh, when I say modern, like um, when the Western world develops a theory of child education, um, it begins with Rousseau and his ideas. And so, you know, I'm not into child education. That's not my domain. But we could certainly look at the roots of that and, and question where some of those things have gone wrong. Another idea that was really central with Rousseau is hating the rich. And I did a Google search for this. There is a name for hating the poor. Uh, what is it called again? Aporophobia is um, the, the word that means hating the poor or having a disposition that the poor are bad. There is no word, according to my latest Google search, for hating the rich, but there ought to be because Rousseau was the first one to say with saying or expressing the sentiment um, that no man can profit except at the expense of another. He goes through this whole um, this whole story of how wealth was invented. Um, we all had an equal amount of land and all had an equal amount of cattle and, and whatever and then the only way that one person could get more is by taking from somebody else and then money was invented so that it was even easier to take from other people. Anyways, there's this fundamental con, which is a very questionable story about the invention of wealth. 
um, there's this very important story within Rousseau that then becomes anchored within the Western mind that um, when you see somebody that's really, really rich, the reason that they're really rich is that somewhere along the way, um, they cheated and stole and took that money from somebody that ought to have had it. If everybody was being ethical, everybody would be equal. And the only reason there's inequality is because the rich are stealing from the poor. And uh, this you know, then becomes a fundamental concept that goes into the water and, and gets resurrected by, by other thinkers, specifically Marx, later on. As I say these things, um, it might be just an important thing to, to take a moment aside to talk about, is that um, most of you probably don't know who these thinkers are, and probably you know, you've never read Augustine's Confessions. You've never read um, Rousseau's Confessions. You've never read Marx's Manifesto. And yet, these are the major thinkers that have influenced other major thinkers that have influenced the university professors that have influenced your high school teachers that have influenced you. And so when we look at the roots of these ideas, what we're actually doing is we're looking at like the roots of our society. And so it might seem abstract and who are these people and why should I care about what they think? But really we're digging down to the foundations of why we think what we think. And as we're going to see by the end of this podcast, these ideas manifest themselves on our Twitter feeds all the time. Uh, so I think it's it's important to um, to highlight. So Hegel, his full name is George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel, nice long German name, lived in 1770 to 1831, so at the end of the Enlightenment period. And uh, he was, um, well, why didn't I put uh, Immanuel Kant in here? So Immanuel Kant lived in 1724 to 1804, the end of the Enlightenment period. And um, I think the reason I didn't include him is there's not a direct link to um, to Marxism. But it the one thing that is important in the history of religion is he wrote the book um, Religion Within the Bounds of Reason Alone. And uh, he was very much of the, uh, of the perspective of the... He believed that um, it was all about the human mind, you know, back to Descartes and, you know, I think therefore I am. And he figured he had a way to figure out the whole world, starting with himself as, you know, um, the starting point of his worldview. And then he was able to explain the whole world without reference to God uh, from this rationalistic perspective, what we might call today maybe a scientific perspective. Although I don't don't like that term for a lot of reasons, but he he figured he could he could figure out the world, and so he wanted to fit religion within that. So you know, here's my world that I figured out through my mind, which is so amazing. And then we can fit religion within that. And what what religion was for Kant is basically ethics. You know, be a good person, love your neighbor, that sort of thing. Um, but he wanted to get rid of what he called. Um, mystical religion or magical religion like kind of this dark magic thing of singing praises to god burning incense to god having communion meeting in buildings well you can meet in a building if if the pastor is telling you to be a good person um but this personal relationship with with jesus and this idea of the atonement was very abhorrent to Kant. you got to pay for your own sins through your own good works uh so it's just worth noting in passing that Kant was the father of um, 
we what make what I would call in different podcasts liberalism, this idea of um, you know what's foundational and fundamental is human thought and ethics and Christianity needs to fit within that bubble. All right, so we'll move past Kant. Uh, he's just so important we couldn't go past him without mentioning him. Hegel, though, is, is directly important for understanding Marxism. Hegel, again, lived at 1770 to 1831, and uh, he was a German thinker, uh, and he was... Um, often called a pantheist. Now, some people would say he's not a pantheist, but I think pantheism is, you know, at this level of doing a survey, that's probably the best way we can understand him. What pantheism is, is uh, this idea that God is everything, he is in everything. So we're kind of used to pantheism when we look at uh, Hinduism or some forms of Buddhism, that God is the world and we are part of God and God is part of us and it's all, you know, it's all God, you know, so, so you achieve enlightenment when you realize that you are part of God, that God is you, and you, you know, um, so many New Age thinkers would be pantheists, you know, and they, they would want you to realize that really you are God, you are Jesus, you know, all this sort of nonsense. Um, and uh, he, he was not so much religious, although his ideas had a religious overtone. He was very much a philosopher, and his concern was to say that uh, being is becoming, that as things move from one state to another, uh, as you move from being, you know, a teenager to a young adult to uh, a grown man, those transformations are becoming. You're becoming something else. You're changing into something else, and that that moment of transformation is where being happens. Things are never static. They never stay the same. And as things move and transform, that's God. So it's like, what? What are you talking about? How is that God? Well, God is everything. God is everywhere. God is in everything, right? So as everything pushes forward and becomes different and becomes better, God becomes different and becomes di and become, moves forward and becomes better. So God himself is evolving and becoming better. He's becoming himself, according to Hegel, according to this idea. Um, and we are part of God, and so we are becoming God. All right? Don't agree. think it's nonsense. But anyways, that's what Hegel believed. Um, and how does this transformation happen? So for, for Hegel, it was very important to say that there's two sides of things. There's two sides of just about everything. Well, for him, there's probably two sides of everything. This is often called dialectal, di dialectic, dialectic, that there's two sides of things. And for many things, there are two sides of it, right? Yin, yang, male, female, um, north, south, uh, positive and negative. Uh, but for him, he would say everything has two sides to it. And there's a thesis, there's an antithesis, and there's a synthesis. So you have, you know, <laughs> chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream, you have a debate, which one's better? And you make a chocolate swirl, and it's better than both. Um, you know, historical examples would be the, the Greek Empire that was conquered by the Roman Empire, and it creates the Greco-Roman Empire, which is better than either of them independently. And um, he applied this thinking to history and showed, um, he probably created the, 
the dominant way of looking at history that still probably prevails to some extent to today of evolution that you know as societies kind of collided with one another and you know this thesis antithesis and synthesis happened societies have evolved and progressed to the point where we're at where we are today which is you know for him he would say that western democratic christian society as it's found in germany is the best you know society that ever has been and his thoughts moved right on into you know uh german um the the theories of the aryan race superiority and, and all that sort of nonsense uh, because they figured they were at the top of evolution and and that's the direction they took his thoughts um, but it's important to just understand how for Hegel evolution happens, how progress happens. It's through this collision of two competing ideas that create a new synthesis. So Darwin was a later contemporary of Hegel, 1809 to 1882. And um, he applied Hegelianism to biology, as you know, created Darwinian evolution, uh, which did two things. For one thing, it you know certainly changed biology and how we look at the world the age of the earth um although there were definitely intimations that the earth was much older than six thousand years even up to this time uh and also created grounds for atheism uh, on a wide scale many 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 people said well you know what this makes a lot more sense to be atheist um and so you know atheism started to replace deism as a dominant idea moving into uh, the 1900s. So let's summarize the precursors of Marxism. We have um, a move towards, so I guess in saying precursors to Marxism, what I could have said is the Enlightenment, um, the direction of, of the Enlightenment and how that pushed towards Marxism or created, you know, the the fertile breeding grounds that, that created Marxism. So we have secularism, which is a move from revealed religion to, um, well, it's, it's really a move from the Catholic Church and the control of that to um, the Protestant Reformation and then to smaller churches, you know, uh, the Quakers and the Baptists and the, the churches that were independent from any state, and then move towards deism. Uh, and then finally towards atheism. We have a move within the understanding of humanity from a sinner who has, you know, sin within them and needs salvation to a sinner to a blank slate, somebody that's perfect at birth and all the evil comes in from outside. The world systems, the church, the state, uh, parents, um, gender, male, female, um, which used to be considered a divine right to rule, used to be, you know, your parents are there, uh, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you, that you may dwell in the land and that you may prosper. Um, as it says in the Bible, um, pay your taxes to Caesar, um, render, render unto Caesar the things that are of Caesar and to God the things that are God. Um, this idea that the world systems are put in place by God for our good and for our protection was replaced by this idea that actually nature is good and cities are bad, governments are bad, church is bad, even family potentially is bad. What we need is to get back to nature. 
nature is the adversary to utopia, um, to you know all things being right, and Hegelianism, the idea that um, conflict is the path towards progress, that we need to have these these struggles between competing powers so that we can arrive at a new synthesis. So these are the things that really laid out the groundwork and the foundation for uh, Marxism, and each one of these is going to be brought up into uh, Marxist system. But I'm thinking that I've covered a lot of ground here, so I think what I'm going to do is cut this podcast off as um, the precursors to Marxism, and then in the next podcast we'll move into uh, Marxism itself. So um, I wish you well, and I guess uh, for those of you listening along, I'll see you next week, and for those of you binge listening later on, I'll see you in a few seconds. So this is uh, Josiah Meyer for the No Longer Be Children podcast. Have a good day. Bye.